Bonjour, salut, and welcome to City Breaks Paris, episode one, a brand new series on that really loveliest of cities, Paris. If you've been, you'll know why I'm excited about starting it as our new topic. If you haven't been, my only advice is you really should go as soon as you possibly can. Actually, that's not advice from me. That's advice written in 1835 by John Ruskin. He put it slightly differently, as follows. You who have ever been to Paris, know, And you who have not been to Paris, go. Quite. What good advice. So, just to start things off, three quotations from writers who did their best in one or two sentences to sum up what it was they most loved about the city. The first one, Somerset Morn, on the ever-popular topic of how beautiful Paris is in the springtime, with, quote, chestnuts in the Champs-Élysées in bloom and the light in the streets so gay. He was talking about how he'd gone to Paris to do some work and he confessed to the idea of dawdling over his work, as he put it, so that he could stay a little longer. Then there's American writer Maxine Rose Shaw, who fell in love with Paris by night. Again, a very popular theme. This is what she wrote. Vibrant and askew, the gold-lit Eiffel Tower tilted jauntily and for a beret wore the moon. The bateaux-mouches were spaceships floating on black iridescent ribbon, while at the Place de la Concorde the obelisk was a rocket taking off. And in a letter to Elizabeth Barrett Browning written in 1906, Percy Lubeck has a go at explaining that just being in Paris lifted his spirits. Quote, the living charm of the place, the sense that a quicker, easier, lighter spirit vibrates there than elsewhere, the sense of being saved from the dullness of existence and given a fresh start with a livelier, more flexible mind. So, if you've listened to any of the previous City Break series, you'll know that episode one is really for an overview, a little introduction to the geography, the history, the broad sweep of the place. Geographically, I'm imagining Paris needs no introduction. North European city of, actually this is a surprise to me, 2.1 million people. I somehow thought it would be more than that. London's four times that for a start. But no. If you're talking about Greater Paris, that would be 10.5 million, but only 2.1 living in the city itself. Situated, of course, on the River Seine, the heart of the city being that little figure of eight that the river does, subdividing and meeting up again, creating two little islands, the Ile Saint-Louis, which is the smaller of the two, and the one that was originally settled, and the next door, Ile de la Cité, resplendent with Notre Dame and some of Paris's other very oldest buildings. OK, so the river running through the middle, and around the outer boundary, a road called the Périphérique, a ring road which encircles the 20 arrondissements found inside. So the river, if you think of it as flowing from east to west, divides the city into the right and left banks, much talked about. In fact, the French have a little rhyming couplet to describe the difference, which goes like this. La rive droite dépense. The right bank spends. La rive gauche pense. The left bank thinks. And that's it, really. The right bank, more given to that area of tiny passage with all the glorious shops and set back a bit from the river, the bigger department stores and so on. And the left bank, very much more the intellectual side, home to the Sorbonne, the university, hangout of so many famous writers over the centuries. Another main aspect to grasp 
is the idea of the grand axe. You'll hear the word grand relating to grandeur so many times when talking about Paris. So that began really with the Champs-Élysées going from the Louvre to the Arc de Triomphe to that main splendid street, such a symbol of the city, which you'll certainly see regularly on television every Bastille day, every time the Tour de France ends, etc., etc. But the Grand Axe refers in fact to the extension of that road when it was decided in 1989, the bicentenary of the French Revolution of course, to make another grand gesture to build the Grand Arche de la Défense in a straight line from the other two monuments. So you can start at the Louvre, go through the Arc de Triomphe and look ahead to the Arche de la Défense and that's a total length of about 8 kilometres. So the oval shape that makes up the inner city, about 10 kilometres in diameter, contains about 600 streets and divides into 20 separate districts, the arrondissement, numbered 1 to 20. Number 1 is bang in the centre, so including the Ile de la Cité and surrounding, and then the districts wind round in a sort of snail-like pattern, south, west, up again, and round a second time, and are numbered then up to number 20. You could say that districts 1 to 6 are on the territory that represents the medieval heart of the city. Not a whole lot of that is left, more about that later. And then the next 7 to 11 are sort of Renaissance, early modern parts of the city. And really suburbs or arrondissements 12 to 20 represent more the expansion that took place in the 19th century onwards. A map of Paris, of course, is also marked by its parks. So inside the Périphérique, the famous ones would be the Tuileries Gardens along the Seine and the Jardin de Luxembourg on the left bank. But you'll see lots and lots of tiny little parks dotted all over the city. Perhaps the best known of those is the Square du Ver Galant, which you can reach by going down the steps on the Pont Neuf, where you'll find a little triangular park with benches, lovely trees and a view out across the river. There are two very large wooded areas just outside of the town, the one on the west being the Bois de Boulogne and the one on the east, the Bois de Vincennes. But the city centre is really quite compact. All the main monuments are pretty much along the river or really not very far away from it. And so you can get round largely on foot and see lots of things. In his very well-known book, The Flaneur, flâner being a very Parisian activity, sort of wandering here and there, having a look just for the enjoyment of it. The book was written by Edmund White and he described classic Paris as follows. Defined by the Arc de Triomphe and the Eiffel Tower to the west and the Bastille and the Panthéon to the east, everything within this magic parallelogram is worth visiting on foot, starting with the two river islands, the Ile de la Cité and the Ile Saint-Louis and working one's way up to the Boulevard Saint-Germain with its trio of famous establishments, the Lip Restaurant, and the twin cafes Le Flore and Les Deux Magots. So really, everywhere you look, an icon. Yes, Paris is grand and majestic, wide vistas, imposing monuments, but it's also little cobbled streets, pavement cafes, charming little corners. I always think that really, wherever you are in the city, you would always know that you were in Paris and not in a another large European city. Why is that? One reason, bizarre as it sounds, I think, is something I saw described as, quote, the unity of its street furniture. Those 19th century lampposts, rather old-fashioned but very elegant, painted that dark green colour 
if you look round, a lot of the street furniture is painted in that colour and it gives a sort of harmony to the place. The same goes for the metro station entrances, mostly designed at the very beginning of the 20th century. Art Deco style, about half of them are exactly as they were when they were first built. Another reason is those columns you see, they're called Colonne Maurice. So Morris columns, after, I think, Mr Morris who thought of them. And they were first put up in the 1860s to display theatre posters. Then, of course, there are the trees, the plane trees and the chestnuts. And all of those things work together to give the city a sort of a harmony, an idea that it was all designed to look good and to look as if it belonged together. So, turning to history then, the Romans arrived in Paris in 52 BC, but they found there was already a thriving settlement there on the islands. They settled there too, renamed the city Lutetia, you'll see that word, Lutes in French, which pops up now and again in museums and hotel names and things. Paris muddled along then after the Romans left through the Dark Ages and early medieval times until 1100, by which time it was actually the biggest city in Western Europe, title which it retained until it was overtaken by London in the 18th century. The 16th century was marked largely by wars of religion, culminating in the terrible St Bartholomew's Day Massacre, 1572, in which about 3,000 Protestants who'd come to Paris for the wedding of the king's daughter found themselves brutally attacked for being Protestants and murdered. The 17th century is really the century in which the idea of Parisian grandeur began. It saw the building of places like the Palais Royal and the Palais de Luxembourg and, of course, that major establishment of architectural splendour, which is the Palace of Versailles, built by Louis XIV, whose architect was fully on board with the idea that something grand had to be produced and apparently promised Louis that he would fill the city of Paris with, quote, so many magnificent buildings that the whole world will look on in wonder. In the 18th century, you could argue that Paris was, certainly Paris thought it was, the intellectual centre of the world, the century of the Enlightenment, Parisians like Voltaire and Diderot making their mark, the era of salons for literary discussion, the cafe culture began, many newspapers were first printed then, so a century of thought and discussion and ideas. If you know one date in Parisian history, I guess it would be 1789, when the whole world looked on as the Parisians attacked the aristocracy, destroyed so many buildings, they rampaged through the Invalides looking for gunpowder and weapons, then they took off to the Bastille prison and flattened that, overthrew the monarchy, guillotined their king, Louis XVI, and his wife, Marie-Antoinette, set up a national assembly, so a forerunner of parliament, and passed the Déclaration des Droits de l'Homme, the Declaration of Human Rights. Possibly so far so good, but the 1789 revolution was followed by a period known as La Terreur, when, yes, the war against the nobility continued, but the revolution is divided into factions, were brutal against each other. There were several thousand public executions, largely in the Place de la Concorde, as it's now called, which at the time was the Place de la Révolution, utter chaos, brutality and general horror until 1795 when, probably on his white horse, I don't know, along came a young general who'd been making a name for himself in the various wars the French had been waging, known as General Napoleon Bonaparte. He put down the insurrection, was having no more of that, staged a coup d'état, 
It's not by chance, of course, that that word has come into our language from French. And in 1802, appointed himself Consul for Life. Actually, that wasn't a promotion far enough, because two years later, he decided he would make himself Emperor. Rather nice touch. He decided he would be crowned in Notre Dame, invited the Pope to come and do the honours, but decided in the end that actually he would put the crown on his own head. Napoleon's influence on France and the rest of Europe is very well documented, of course. His influence on Paris, equally momentous. He himself declared that under his watch, Paris would be, quote, the capital of capitals. And when he had some spare time from waging war, he promoted the building of things like the Quai de Seine, so the walkways along the riverbanks, the Arc de Triomphe, of course, which was begun under his watch, not finished until after he died, and the Church of the Madeleine, initially designed by him to be a temple to the Grande Armée, so yet another monument to militarism and his victory and all the rest of it, but which in fact in the end became a church. The history of Paris for the rest of the 19th century is a pretty turbulent affair. So after the demise of Napoleon in the 1820s, the monarchy was restored, but not for long, because in 1848 along came another revolution and the declaration of a second republic, more barricades of course. There was a period after that when Paris began to take on the look of grandeur that we recognise today, mainly under the supervision of one Baron Haussmann, who was charged with modernising the city, decided to have many of the very dark and rather dangerous little streets dating from medieval times swept away so that big new grand boulevards could be built. I was talking about street furniture a minute ago and how that made Paris very Paris. Baron Haussmann was the other man who saw to it that that's how things turned out. He decreed, for example, that the buildings along these grand boulevards would be seven floors high and no higher. All the facades would be in the cream-coloured limestone. There would be wrought iron balconies on the second and fifth floors and the roofs would slope at 45 degrees. So all of this meant that a unity was created. More trouble in 1870, though. The city was besieged by the Germans after the Franco-German War and a period of starvation that was really difficult for the population. As an example, many of the zoo animals were slaughtered and eaten, so starving were people. And of course that led to unrest, finally known as the 72-day period called the Commune. So more barricades, more uproar, more ordinary Parisians setting themselves against the authorities, and the whole thing ended in a terrible week known as the Semaine Sanglante, the Bloody Week, in which some 25,000 people were killed, many of them by government troops. All of this prompted Edward Fitzgerald in 1870 to write the following in a letter. The French, he said, quote, enlighten the world by their books, plays, songs, bon mots, and all the arts and sciences which they are ingenious in. They can do all things, but manage themselves and live in peace with others. However, as it turned out, the period from 1871 to 1914 became known later as the Belle Epoque, a period of grandeur and beauty and emphasis on the arts and fun and living well. It's the period when buildings like the Opera and the Eiffel Tower were put up. It was the era of the big, new, exciting department stores, the grand art deco cafes, the years when the Impressionists were working in Paris when there was a bohemian spirit of hedonism, frivolity, 
marked by institutions like the Moulin Rouge nightclub or the Chat Noir, the café in Montmartre that you must have seen depicted on a million Toulouse-Lautrec posters. All of this, of course, came crashing to an end when the First World War broke out. The 1920s were known as the Année Folle, when people who'd suffered such terrible deprivation in the war let loose. That's the period, of course, captured by writers like Hemingway and F. Scott Fitzgerald. But that too didn't last, because World War II then became known as Les Années Noires, the Black Years, because of the German occupation of the city. The next date at which perhaps most of the world was looking at Paris was May 1968. There may have been student unrest in many places in the world, but of course in Paris they did it as well as anywhere else. And thinking about the modern era, there's a theme really for some of the most recent buildings to have gone up. So if you start with, say, the Tour Montparnasse, which went up in the 1970s as one of Paris's first skyscrapers, that was pretty soon followed by a movement saying it was not good for Paris to have these ugly skyscrapers and there'd be no more of them, thank you. The same attitude prevailed when it was decided to knock down the old market area, Les Halles, and replace it with a glass and steel monstrosity, much more modern, full of shops and restaurants and whatnot. Again, Parisians decided a mistake had been made and that they didn't really want too much modernism invading their beautiful city. There's a thing called the Grand Projet, Big Projects, again we keep coming back to this word grandeur, which would describe sort of legacy projects, often by outgoing presidents, which they leave to make their mark on the city. So an example of that would be the Pompidou Centre, built at the end of the 1970s. Again, the world looked on, thinking, what is Paris up to? This big glass building right in the middle of the city, with, as they like to put it, its entrails on the outside, because those red, blue and yellow pipes, which pump electricity and water and whatnot round the building, are all on the outside. Was that stunning and original, or was it just ugly? Opinion was divided. More shock over things like building the glass pyramid outside the Louvre, so putting something so modernistic in front of a centuries-old, iconic building. Likewise, the Grande Arche de la Défense. Some thought it brought Paris up to date. Others thought it was absolutely out of keeping with the grandeur of the Arc de Triomphe, which it mirrors. And all of this brings us to a question for the current era. I'm recording this in the week when the architects and the politicians in Paris have fallen out over the restoration of Notre Dame. It said that the architect has been employed and says that he will only replace the spire exactly as it was. And a government minister has gone on record as apparently saying that this man should keep his mouth shut, which I take to mean that perhaps some people want the need to restore the cathedral to be an opportunity to do something new and startling and possibly a little bit shocking. So we'll have to wait a few years to see what they come up with. But it's a very Parisian debate. Just a word then on a few themes to draw everything together. I mentioned that the patron saint of Paris is one Sainte Genevieve. You can see a statue of her on the Pont de la Tournelle, which is the bridge that joins the left bank to the Ile Saint-Louis, one that you'll almost certainly sail under if you go on a bateau mouche. Saint Genevieve's remains were originally buried in the church named after her, and throughout the Middle Ages, every year, on January the 3rd, her remains were processed to the Cathedral of Notre Dame and back a sort of way of asking her protection for the city, I think. And the same would be done at any time when there was disaster. So if there was a flood or plague or famine, 
all of which beset the city so many times over those centuries, then saint Genevieve's remains would be brought out and put to use. But in the aftermath of the revolution, when so many churches and anything to do with religion was destroyed, her remains and the casket they were kept in were all melted down, so that seemed to be the end of that, until the 19th century, when she made a bit of a comeback, and it was decided that a replacement reliquary would be made using stone from her original sarcophagus. The city's motto also dates from the Middle Ages, was first coined apparently by the water merchants of Paris, who said that the city, it's in Latin, fluctuat nec mergitur, which means it floats and it does not sink. Thought to be a reference to looking at the islands from further up the river, and taken to mean then by extension that Paris will always survive. Let's hope that's true. You've almost certainly heard of Paris being called the City of Light, or Ville Lumière in French, and there are a number of reasons why that might be the case. It does seem to be a name that's stuck. It's believed perhaps to have dated from the era of Louis Fourteenth, when he decided, after quite a period of war and domestic upheaval, he wanted to do something to restore the public's faith in law and order. So he, politician that he was, quadrupled the number of policemen in the city, and he decided that more lighting must be installed. So lanterns were placed on all the main streets, residents were asked to light their windows with candles and oil lamps. Why? The idea was that if you have light everywhere, there'll be fewer lawbreakers, fewer people who can hide in dark corners and keep away from the police. And it's thought that at that point, somebody gave the city the nickname La Ville Lumière, the City of Light. But there are other reasons, perhaps, why it might be called that, or maybe reasons why that name has stuck. For example, it's thought that when, in the 19th century, Baron Osman knocked down lots of the dark medieval streets to make way for his grand new boulevards, then that opened up the city and made it much lighter in atmosphere. And actually, literally, without these narrow little streets where the sun couldn't reach. The name Ville Lumière was actually the slogan for the 1900 exhibition, known as the Exposition Universelle, so Paris itself was flaunting the idea that it was the City of Light. Homage was done at the exhibition to things like electricity and other new inventions. It was, of course, the period when the Eiffel Tower was shown off to full effect, and the era when the Lumiere brothers introduced the world to cinema. Modern tourists probably relate to the idea of the description because of the Eiffel Tower that lights up so splendiferously every evening, glittering away. And that is made possible by no fewer than 20,000 light bulbs all strung up in 40 kilometres of wiring. But, of course, it's not just the Eiffel Tower that lights up. I've read that there are, would you believe, over 296, not quite sure what that means, 297 perhaps, illuminated sites in Paris, if you count them all, the statues, the fountains, the bridges, the churches, etc, etc. And a statistic I found of the 37 major bridges in Paris, 33 of them light up every evening. So definitely the city of light. And the city of great monuments and grand vistas, but also of the small and charming. Certainly also the city of thought and ideas. Where else but in Paris could you find a metro station, the Concorde in fact, which is decorated inside by thousands of tiles, each one with one letter on it, which spell out the 
Droit de l'homme, the Declaration of Human Rights, which dates from the Revolution. Paris, it is saying, gave this idea to the world. It's also very much the city of thought and ideas, of literature particularly. The novelist Balzac referred to Paris as a city of a thousand novels, and in his book The Flaneur, Edmund White tells us that between 1824 and 1976, there were over 200 American novels which centred on Paris. It is, of course, also the city that Hemingway and Scott Fitzgerald and so many other writers made their home. An English journalist writing in 1929 wrote that, quote, Paris will be the metropolis of modern civilization as long as culture appreciates elegance. It's long been a global centre for art as well, not least because it's the site of the Louvre, but also because it was the spiritual home of movements like Impressionism. Think how many Impressionist painters worked out of Paris, and how many of them actually painted Paris, took it as their subject matter. An artist like Toulouse-Lautrec has also put Paris very much on the map, and in the minds of art lovers everywhere, with those wonderful iconic posters vaunting the delights of the Paris nightclubs of his day. It's the city of fashion, of course. Rousseau had something to say about that. La mode domine les provinciales. Fashion dominates the women who live in the provinces. Mais les Parisiennes dominent la mode. But Parisians dominate fashion. What they wear will spread to the rest of the country. Stroke world. You only have to think of Paris Fashion Week, all the designers who've made Paris their base. But it's more than that, isn't it? People say, don't they, that French women just have that je ne sais quoi when it comes to style. An American writer, Lynn Schnornberger, wrote about it in the following way. Quote, I'm convinced that all French women are born completely crease-free with a unique and mystical scarf-tying gene. Quite. How do they do it? It's also the city of romance, of course. The most romantic thing that Humphrey Bogart said to Ingrid Bergman was, we'll always have Paris. The author Stephen Clarke, in his book Paris Revealed, notes that while London is, according to his estimates, roughly 17 times the size of Paris, Paris has almost as many florists as London does. Parisians are buying each other flowers in much greater numbers than the Brits. Only in Paris do you find the Pont des Arts, the bridge, which had so many padlocked mementos of couples' love fixed to it that there was a danger that it would actually sink under the weight and the Paris authorities had to ban the idea. There's a slightly risque element to all of this as well, and that's not a new thing. We can go right back to 1699, when Joseph Addison described Paris as being, quote, a place where modesty is so very scarce that I think I have not seen a blush since my first landing at Calais. In 1739, the writer Thomas Gray described the women of Paris as having, quote, faces dyed in scarlet up to the eyes. And then I found a warning from a writer writing in 1856, one M.F. Tupper, who wrote a diary about his visit to Paris, in which he said that it may look very seemly, but actually if you dig a bit deeper, you'll find that quite the reverse is true. But he put it much better than that. He wrote, Paris has attained to a most immaculate and extraordinary standard of decency, no doubt, but it were folly, if not sin, to inquire further. We know that the future Edward VII, when he was sowing his wild oats, was frequently in Paris, enjoying all the things he couldn't enjoy at home, visiting the Folie Bergère and enjoying the can-can dancers of Montmartre. 
And of course, of course, it is the city of cafes. Ralph Waldo Emerson described it as the city of conversation and cafes and went so far as to say that he thought that was actually the city's supreme merit. There might be something in that, I think. And that hasn't gone away today, has it? A Paris cafe is like nowhere else. Those red awnings, the waiters properly dressed, black trousers, white shirt, black waistcoat, standing by to do things properly for you. There'll be a white tablecloth, there'll be proper cutlery, a little bread basket, water that you haven't even asked for, etc. All exactly as it should be, or, as the French put it, comme il faut. Just before I finish, can I mention the thing that I do keep reading by so many writers, this idea that Paris is beautiful, Paris is lovely, but Parisians can be a bit hard to take sometimes. There was a marvellous description written by Arnold Bennett of how he thought it was quite the thing on a wet night in Paris to stand around waiting for ages because no cab driver would stop and pick you up in the rain. And he described their reasoning as follows. It is not because he is hoping for a client in richer furs, or because he's going to the stables, or because he has earned enough that night, or because he has an urgent appointment with his enchantress, but simply from malice. I think that's a little unfair, but if you've ever got in the way of a Parisian in a hurry, you will know that they can be a little bit short-tempered with you. I found an article in an issue of the Sunday Times from 1979, written by Dennis Herbstein, where he was talking about the same thing, really, and he said the French themselves have got a word for it, and it is rather a delicious word. So I don't know if you know the expression, je m'en fous, which means I don't care. Well, that's the polite version anyway. And he calls his attitude sans foutisme. I suppose in English that would be a don't care attitude, but somehow sans foutisme is so much more French and encapsulates the idea so much better. Is there a modicum of truth in that? Well, I think it's very grumpy to say so because it's such a beautiful city and you can have such a lovely time in it. So I am going to leave you with one last very positive thought written by the poet Thomas Gray after his visit in 1739 when he said, quite simply, the view from the Pont Neuf is the charmingest sight imaginable. Exactly so. So, a very quick rundown of the episodes to come. The next one, episode two, is going to be about the heart of Paris, so we'll stay on the two islands, look at the very oldest buildings, such as the Conciergerie and the Sainte-Chapelle, and hear the story of Eloise and Abelard. Episodes three to ten, I'm going to take a historical stroll through the city via famous buildings that relate to certain periods. So, Notre-Dame and the Basilique Saint-Denis, the city's two cathedrals, in episode three. The Palace of Versailles, a good excuse to talk about Louis XIV, for episode four. Then Revolutionary Paris, Napoleon's Paris, when we can visit the Arc de Triomphe, the Invalide, and his country house, the Chateau de Malmaison. Moving on then to Montmartre, because one of the big events that happened in Montmartre was the Commune in the 1870s, which led directly to the building of Sacré-Cœur. going to follow that with something on Belle Époque Paris, talking about the opera, the Eiffel Tower, and so on. And then Impressionist Paris, a good excuse to go around the Musée d'Orsay and the Orangerie and the Musée de Marmottan. Occupied Paris, we can look at some of the history museums, particularly the Shoah, the Holocaust Museum, which tells the story of what happened to the Jews in Paris during World War II. Then two or three areas that we won't have reached otherwise. Intellectual Paris on the left bank, 
an episode on the Seine and the Grand Axe, and another one on Saint-Germain, with its Luxembourg Gardens and its Rodin Museum. A couple of art episodes, one on the Louvre, and one on the Pompidou Centre and the Picasso Museum. A few episodes then on themes, one on shopping, one on cafes, one called Buried in Paris, when we can look at the Panthéon and the well-known cemeteries, particularly the Père Lachaise. Then, to finish off, a few episodes on more literary themes, one on the two main writers' houses that you can visit, that will be Balzac and Victor Hugo, so a look at the museums and a look at what they wrote about Paris, one on memoirs of Paris, I could have so many episodes on that, but I'm going to restrict myself to four or five writers who wrote particularly memorable memoirs of being in Paris. One looking at history through literature, so we can look at books like A Tale of Two Cities, where you get swept along in the story, but learn a lot of history as well. And then to finish off, what I think will be episode 22, the very last one, something about other novels set in Paris. So, I hope you're fired up and ready to go, and that you'll be joining me next week for episode two. And all that remains for me to do now is thank you very much for listening, and grand merci, and to say goodbye. Au revoir. Au revoir.